Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to recap the midterm elections with Utah State University political science professor Damon Can. Of special interest in Utah has been the U.S. Senate race, in which Senator Mike Lee won re-election. Cache County, it was the race for county executive, which incumbent David Zook appears to have won. Nationally, the red wave has not happened, with both houses of Congress still up for grabs. Control of the Senate perhaps not decided until a possible Georgia runoff in December. Issues important to voters seem to have included abortion and inflation. And uh, so, uh, Damon Can here we are again. Thanks for joining us for election night. And uh, things are still up in the air. Is that a product of more uh, vote by mail? That's exactly the case, uh, Tom. We've uh, made uh, increasing the transition, not just here in Utah, but nationally with more absentee ballots, uh, more states using uh, vote by mail uh, for a larger and larger share of their elections. And as a result, you've got uh, states that have sizable chunks of, of ballots that are yet to be counted. They could have been postmarked yesterday, uh, or excuse me, Monday, uh, but it takes some time for those ballots to all end up in the place where they need to be to be counted. And as a result, uh, we, uh, we, we're all excited to see what happens, but, but it's just going to take a little time to figure it out. Things are up in the air nationally. We'll get to that. But uh, here in Utah, it uh, seemed like things went pretty true to form. Um, Republicans, by and large, winning fairly handily. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, Utah and the nation kind of diverge in, in some ways. It was not the night nationally that Republicans had hoped for. Uh, but uh, in Utah, things went pretty much as expected uh, with all four uh, members of the Utah congressional delegation, uh, all, all of our House members uh, sailing to smooth and easy reelections. And then you, of course, had uh, the Senate race between Mike Lee and Evan McMullen. Polling showed that race to be pretty close uh, if you were looking several weeks back. But in the last week to two weeks, that race has just blown open for Mike Lee, uh, where McMullen was hoping to close the gap. He didn't. Uh, where we had a lot of a, a big chunk of undecided voters, even up to the last few days of the election. And uh, those undecideds broke heavily for Mike Lee and uh, a, just a deluge of spending and ads. Uh, you, you would have had to be hiding in some sort of very odd, obscure location if you lived in Utah in the last couple of weeks and weren't seeing a lot of, of ad material for Mike Lee and Evan McMullen. And that, that made a big difference, I think, for the Lee campaign. Uh, I wonder, I don't know if we can tell at this point, probably not, but those undecideds were those... Republican-leaning voters who weren't quite sold, or were were those independents who, in the end, decided to go with with Mr. Lee? We we don't have a lot of clarity on that because we haven't seen uh, the the full exit poll uh, results uh, get released yet. My hunch is that a lot of them were uh, center-leaning Republican voters. Uh, and the the message uh, that I think w- was likely to be most effective just anecdotally from talking to people uh, is not just, you know, Mike Lee versus Evan McMullen, but this race had national implications, that the Senate, control of the Senate potentially is at stake here. 
And uh, for many Republicans, uh, this may have been as much a vote for Republicans to control the Senate as it was for uh, for uh, a vote for Mike Lee. And of course, uh, where Evan McMullen had uh, had indicated that he was not going to caucus with either party, that made this question really at stake. Had McMullen indicated that he would have caucused with the Republican Party, it would have taken the wind out of the sails of that argument. Of course, it's a catch-22 for McMullen as soon as he said that he would caucus—had he indicated that he would caucus with the Republican Party, it would have jeopardized his level of support among Democrats, which he needed in order to be successful in the election. It's just a tough spot uh, from which he was running uh, and ended up that Republicans came home and, and voted for Mike Lee. What do you think this does for the future for this experiment? It kind of was an experiment, right? Democrats decided not to run a candidate, to uh, throw their support essentially behind an independent candidate who on many issues was as conservative or more conservative than than his opponent um, and and was running on this big issue of January 6th and Senator Lee's alleged uh, involvement. Um, it, I mean, it, it didn't work. In the final analysis, Mr. McGowan didn't get didn't get elected. Uh, did it work well enough that the, this might happen again in the future? Do you think? Yeah, that's an it's an interesting question. I I think simply the fact that McMullen wasn't uh, that that he didn't win uh, takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of doing this. And while while many Democrats, I, I think, as, as we visited with. Uh, a Democratic Party official last night, uh, and and uh, others around the state. I think many Democrats came around who were skeptical at first came around to the idea. Uh, McMullen certainly outperformed uh, the um, uh, the the vote share that we would have expected any Democrat to receive in that race in the state, and so those might be arguments in favor. Uh, but you have looming large out there. You know, it didn't work last time. Uh, so, you know, why would the Democrats not choose to nominate someone uh, who could really carry their their standard forward, as opposed to kind of compromising and and you know still getting the same result? Mm. Uh, in the Utah races, any, any surprises that really stand out to you? Um, not a great deal. Uh, kind of, you know, we we expected, uh, you know, the 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 race uh, Lee kind of blew that blew that Senate race open. Um, if we look to some of the state legislative races, there were a couple where where Democrats hoped to sneak in a surprise victory. Uh, um, we we had uh, Phil Lyman, a very conservative legislator. Uh, that represents the southeastern corner of Utah. Um, and he was, you know, a, a, a very spirited campaign down there, but they ended up, Phil Lyman wins by, you know, 18 points or, or there are eight, eight, almost 20 points. And then uh, Patrick Belmont, uh, similarly on the opposite end of the state, up here on the north side, uh, ran a very uh, spirited, strong campaign knocked a lot of doors, uh, a lot of messaging, a lot of voter contacting. And again, we had, had Republicans, I think, in Cache Valley a little bit nervous. Uh, but in the end, just the fundamental uh, partisan makeup of that district was, was too much for him to overcome. Performed better than I think uh, uh, any Democrat has in Cache Valley in recent memory. Uh, but it just wasn't quite enough to, to overcome the partisan nature of the district. 
So, you know, if you if if you were sitting in on a Democratic Party postmortem today, uh, which which is would be so very similar to about every two years, <laughs> Utah. In, in Utah. Uh, what yes. what, uh, what would you what would you advise the party? They they put in some cases put up some pretty good candidates. Uh, is this is just a very red state? I guess is that the bottom line. I, I think that's the general gist of it. I mean, you have Democrats doing well where we expected Democrats to do well in Utah. Uh, you know, in a number of the Salt Lake County races uh, unfolded exactly the way we would would predict them uh, to to come out. Uh, and and in both instances where Democrats won and where Democrats lost, it's simply a reflection of the underlying partisanship of uh, of, of those regions of the state. Uh, Republican areas in Utah, which which comprise, of course, as everyone knows, a, a large share of the state, went Republican. Predominantly Democratic areas in the Salt Lake metro area tended to go uh, go Democrat. A, a pretty just just a pretty normal election in Utah, uh, outside of the McMullen and Lee race, which itself still turned out in a fairly normal Republican fashion. Yeah. Uh, what about United Utah Party? Last night we talked with the chairperson of the of the party. Um, she was pleased with. Uh, she says we're a new party. We're you know we're we're making some inroads, but structurally, uh, you know the the winner take all just doesn't lend itself, does it, to to third parties? Exactly. Uh, you know you have. Uh, and and while while the idea of a moderate party may seem appealing, uh, there's a couple of of obstacles that the United Utah Party has to overcome, and the and and the deck is stacked against them. First of all, you've got large numbers of party identifiers in the Republican and Democratic Party. United Utah Party doesn't have this core base of supporters that they can rely on, you know, year in and year out. Uh, another issue that they have is that there's um, uh, you know, there's a stereotype sometimes in Utah that says that you know a Democrat in Utah is probably a Republican anywhere else because Utah is kind of more of a conservative state. Uh, the survey evidence actually does not support that um, uh, that that hypothesis at least today. That that was likely uh, a, a very true in the 1970s, 1980s, even into the 90s a little bit. Uh, but what we've really developed is a, a strongly polarized party system. If you look at the political ideology of Democrats in Utah, they tend to be fairly liberal Democrats. And so the United Utah Party might hope to forge a coalition of moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats. The challenge is that the Democratic Party in Utah is by and large not a terribly moderate Democratic Party. Uh, and so it, it, it's much harder to pick off Democrats. There are some more moderates, but again, the Republican Party in Utah tends to be a fairly conservative Republican Party. We have polarization in Utah, not just on the elite dimension when we talk about Democratic leaders and Republican leaders, but in the electorate itself. And that helps to explain the reason why we see so much polarization in, in the state of Utah in our voting outcomes. And we tend to see uh, uh, and, and, and why there's just not as much space as one might think in the middle for a united Utah party to come in and succeed. The second issue, there's no credit for second place. Uh, so even if the united Utah party did manage to mount an impressive campaign and uh, look, any third-party candidate would tell you they'd be very pleased to be included in the debates. They'd be thrilled to be getting 6, 8, 10% of the vote. That's a great showing for a third party. 
but where there's no credit for second or third place in terms of, of the representation you get, there's just not an incentive for, for people to make that vote. Were we to see Utah shift to a ranked choice voting system where, you know, you know the, the, who, you, you lop off kind of the bottom finishing candidate uh, and then, uh, you know, you, you reallocate votes, then you might see a situation where a United Utah Party candidate has a shot at being more successful under the current first-past-the-post winner-take-all election structure in Utah. It's just really tough for a third party to win. There's an increasing number of uh, states and areas going to rank choice, right? What what's the uh, what are the results been? Not the electoral results, but are people happy with with rank choice where it, where it's happening? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, predominantly uh, where we've seen rank choice voting adopted, uh, both in, you know exclusively in Utah, it's in municipal elections, which are all nonpartisan in the state of Utah at, at the moment. Um, historically, it hasn't always municipal hasn't always been uh, nonpartisan, but at, at present, there's not a single city in, in the state that uses a partisan election. So uh, that being the case, um, the the partisan implications of ranked choice voting haven't been uh, something that we've been able to observe or experiment with. Um, the Republican Party did some ranked choice voting in their convention for a period of time. Uh, and and the one of the major advantages of ranked choice voting is that you only have to come out and vote one time. You hold one election. Sometimes uh, it, it's referred to as instant runoff voting because you take everybody's preferences, one, two, three, four, five, you rank them out. And then if your candidate, your first choice candidate gets eliminated, uh, then your vote is reallocated to your second choice candidate. So since they know your preference ordering, they can actually simulate the results of a runoff election as each lowest vote getter gets lopped off uh, of the bottom, reallocate those votes, and see what would happen if you had the same pool of voters that had showed up for a runoff election. But you can do it at the same time. You save uh, the the cost of administering uh, both a primary and a general election. You save... Um, you know, uh, you you can condense the period of campaigning. You can reduce the costs of running for office because candidates now only have to run one election rather than running a primary and then following up in the general election. And so those 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 are the major advantages of that approach. Uh, whether you see it as an advantage or disadvantage, it would likely weaken uh, the two-party system in uh, the United States if we were to go to a ranked choice voting uh, setup in partisan elections. So uh, I, I think one reason there's been some hesitancy in some corners of, of, of the state of Utah is that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats has any interest in giving up the two-party. It, it, it may be pre- predominantly a Republican state, uh, but uh, you, you risk the Democrats becoming even less relevant in the state of Utah uh, if you go to a ranked choice voting system. And so I, th- I think there's a little bit of hesitancy on the part of both major parties to give up or, or risk changes to the status quo that could disadvantage them uh, under a ranked choice mm. voting system. Just parenthetically, um, 
uh, th- that was Abraham Lincoln's strategy in 1860. I'll just throw in a history. Historical. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he said, you know, Seward's the front runner, but I want to be everybody's second choice. So that, and it worked out it well worked for out him. Very well. It worked out very well for him. Um, what about write-ins? Uh, very, very hard. You, you Last night you said it's, it's 50 years ago was the last successful write-in candidate. That was here in Cache Valley. Um Looked like uh, Mr. Handy did okay, right? And Mr. Ensign here in uh, in Cache County, running for Cache County Executive, did okay, thirty percent or something, right? At least at this point. Uh, of course, thirty percent doesn't get you the the, the office, right? Yes. Yeah, so so uh, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, both uh, uh, Steve Handy, the incumbent who lost uh, at convention uh, and and uh, was not successful in being renominated. Um, I think it's House District 16, I think, uh, uh, decided to go for this writing campaign. And again, uh, did, you know, all kinds of things. He was driving uh, a car around with a giant pencil on top that had a sign that said, write in Steve Handy. Uh, uh, Mark Ensign uh, was all over town. The, the level of signage, uh, advertising, those kinds of things uh, were equal to the level of signage or maybe in excess of the level of signage you saw for uh, incumbent county executive David Zook. Uh, the challenge that you have uh, with uh, with those things are are twofold. Uh, first of all, um, you, you know you have to um, you, you do have to really put out all that information, go to all those lengths just to get your name out there so people even know that you exist. But second of all, when someone pulls up that ballot, there is just not a cue to even think, oh, is this the right race or is that the right race uh, for me to write in this person? Um, you know, can I remember uh, you know, their name? Uh, you know, we, we know it's a cognitively more difficult task to recall something uh, than it is, uh, you know, cold without a prompt than it is to recognize a name of someone who you cho- wanted to vote for. And so it's just a much more difficult task to win in those elections. So, you know, I, I, I would, you know, as a political scientist, give huge props uh, to these, these writing candidates for being as successful as they were, because these numbers are just about as high as it almost ever gets. Uh, you, you, you get the rare exception. You get the Lisa Murkowski who won in a, write, uh, a writing campaign in Alaska, uh, you know, what's 10, 20 years ago now. Uh, you get, uh, you know, that, that uh, legislative race uh, you know, here in, in uh, Cache Valley 50 years ago where someone managed to pull it off. But that's about the time interval on which these things happen. And it just wasn't the, the, the time. It wasn't the right circumstance. It was just too much uh, of an obstacle to overcome uh, for both Mark Ensign and for Steve Handy uh, to, to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the, the, the drama appears to be continuing in Cache County Mr. Zook reelected, it appears, but uh, the council appears maybe ready to, uh, to to boot him. I don't know if they have that power. Uh, they they do not. Okay. Uh, um, the um, you know there are some uh, you know, there there's some amount of acrimony naturally built into separation of power systems, and so some degree of friction between the executive branch and the legislative branch is inevitable. 
Uh, you know, we, we've seen at times conflict between Governor Cox and the Republican, uh, you know, supermajority Republican legislature. Uh, we've seen, we saw that dynamic certainly when, with, with Gary Herbert in a Republican legislature and even with John Huntsman in a Republican legislature. So Cox is not unique at all in that regard. Uh, we saw that, we've seen that in our neighboring state of New Mexico at times when you've had a Democratic governor and a Democratic-controlled legislature, that there's been some friction there as well. So uh, some amount of legislative-executive conflict is normal. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see. You do have several members of the Cache County Council who have retired and stepped down. They weren't seeking re-election. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there's, there may be some possibility of a reset there. Uh, but you also have uh, several members of that council that are continuing, uh, who have been um, who who have been involved uh, to varying degrees uh, in this uh, legislative executive conflict. And you know, in the end, uh, it, it's critically important, I think, for the people of Cache Valley, for for the executive and the legislative branches of our county government, to figure out how to work out these conflicts, because uh, in, in the end. We risk, you know, uh, you know, people at the state who are making decisions about where dollars and support go, making choices not to to send programs and send support to to Cache Valley, if they're worried about the, those resources just getting tangled up in conflict between county executive and county council. Oh, so you, you, this might affect bottom line, outside sources. Yeah, uh, you see, there are other, you know, there's there's a natural tension here. This in Cache County appears to me to, to be dialed up to eleven. I don't know if that how it compares. It it seems really acrimonious at, at the moment. Absolutely yes. Uh, you're you're right that that what's happening in Cache Valley right now definitely surpasses the norm uh, for this. My my speculation is is whether this might be able to be dialed down to uh, you know a more typical level as we see some change in transition in the county council. And, and, you know, a little bit of a reckoning as well um, uh, for, for county council members, uh, you know, needing to, to think about the fact that, you know, David Zook was just reelected. Uh, he was reelected by, you know, a, a, a wide margin, uh, almost 30 points uh, in, in, in that election. And uh, at, at that rate, you know, the idea of, of Zook getting tossed out by the voters, you know, that, that just didn't materialize. Uh, David has worked very hard. He's been, been very engaged in Cache County Republican Party politics for a long time, uh, has a lot of support in the south end of the valley from his, his strong record of service uh, as the city manager for Nibley City. And, and so I think, you know, Zook showcased here that he really does have a, a strong base of support around Cache Valley. And so, you know, that may uh, be a moment of reckoning for the county council to say, all right, let's, you know, let, maybe we can all sit down, bury some hatchets and figure out how to move forward for the good of Cache County. Uh, you know, David may well have to give some things up and make some compromises. The council is certainly going to have to make some compromises uh, to figure out how to move forward. But I, I, I will offer my opinion that if if the council and the executive cannot find ways to reach some common ground, the potential for a clean sweep two and four years from now, turning over the whole thing to find a brand new cast of characters that can work together is very real. Mm. 
Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I uh, want to uh, make a turn to the national uh, scene. And uh, House and Senate are still up for grabs. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get your ideas about where, where especially to look, uh, to read, read the tea leaves here as the returns continue to come in. We have with us Damon Can, who's a USU political science professor. We're recapping the midterm elections. Uh, which were last night. I want to say last night, uh, Damon, but it's really it started a few weeks out. The the mail in votes and it doesn't end on election night anymore. <laughs> At least we don't we don't know the results anymore. Uh, I guess that's the downside of uh, of mail in uh, voting, although it's very convenient. Uh, we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are recapping the election that was, but still is, uh, on the program today. Uh, the red wave nationally didn't materialize, at least it hasn't. Uh, Republicans could still uh, take over both House and Senate, but it but it's still up in the air right now. Uh, before we get to that, uh, Damon Can, by the way, we, ha- we have with us Damon Can, a USU political science professor, uh, with us. Um, I want to talk just briefly about propositions and constitutional amendments. So uh, the Cache County Open Space proposition appears to have won. Yes. Uh, so, uh, and, and by a pretty uh, reasonable margin, uh, not, not massive, but, uh, but there, there's a healthy advantage there that, that I think uh, means that this is going to stick uh, when, uh, when, when the final tallies come in. Uh, and and the thing that was really interesting to me about this this one is it, it was just really not a terribly partisan issue that uh, I, I think there was broad agreement that open space preservation is a priority for Cache Valley. It's something we care about in terms of our, our our rural our agricultural heritage in in the valley, and so and now, you know, look. Everyone who does open space bonds says the best time to do this would have been five or ten years ago. But the next best time to do it is now. Uh, you know, we've, you know we've, we've certainly seen real estate prices go, uh, go pretty crazy here in, uh, in Cache Valley, as has been the case throughout the state of Utah. And, uh, and, and so it's easy to look back and say, ah, oh, we should have done this two years ago. We should have done this four years ago. And, and yeah, that would have been great. We could have, the money could have gone a lot farther in that instance. But the chances of a, a mass collapse in, in land values where we have population pressure, population growth pressure driving our increases in real estate prices uh, means that you know, we're, we're not likely to see a bubble. And, and now is really the best time because you know, those, those prices are not going to go down in significant ways. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was really interesting. Saw a lot of Mike Lee signs with open space signs next to them. Mm-hmm. Saw a lot of Patrick Belmont signs with open space signs next to them. Saw a lot of Evan McMullen signs, Dan Johnson signs, David Zook, Mark Ensign. Those signs were everywhere, and, and there just wasn't a major orchestrated vote no campaign. And I think to that end, uh, you know, residents really felt like it was an investment worth making. Mm-hmm. I want to have you talk briefly about the constitutional amendments, uh, which uh, I, I, I will confess I wasn't really aware of. I encountered it on the ballot, kind of thought through it uh, at that point. But uh, this, you know, some of these are really technical. This one, though, um, has to do with, uh, has a history behind it. Uh, tell, tell us about this. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, just a, a couple of years ago, 
um, uh, up until a couple years ago, for the legislature to come into special session uh, outside of the regular session that runs from January to mid-March, the legislature had to be called into session by the governor of the state of Utah. The legislature couldn't call themselves into session. Uh, This was uh, argued by some as a uh, uh, you know, some people saw the, that change as a technical fix, let the legislature convene when they would like to convene. Others saw it as a separation of powers issue where the governor's check on the legislative branch was to, uh, was to be the one that could call them into special session. Voters didn't end up uh, uh, agreeing with the governor uh, on that one. They saw it as a technical fix and felt the legislature should be able to call itself into session, uh, which they have now, uh, actually, they've exercised that power since that time. Uh, what came up subsequently is now the legislature has a cap on the amount of uh, the percentage of the budget that they can allocate or reallocate in a special session. And the legislature in this constitutional amendment asked for that cap to be uh, removed so that they could basically do whatever they wanted. Legislators, again, framed this as a technical fix so that they could just govern the way the legislature wants to govern. People with concerns about it said this is another erosion of separation of powers between the governor of Utah and the legislature. And in this instance, uh, voters sided uh, fairly decisively uh, with uh, the, the separation of powers argument uh, and rejecting the ability of the legislature to, to have significant ability to reallocate uh, and reshape the state's budget unless they're called into that special session by the governor of Utah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, yeah, well, it wasn't particularly close. It looks like, uh, you know, kind of two to one against. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, uh, let, let's turn to uh, nationwide. So I, I guess... The, the big headline here, and in fact, it has been the headlines in the in papers I've been, uh, I've been reading. Uh, Red wave didn't really materialize. I mean, that the, the, Republicans could, in the end, be successful in taking over both houses of Congress, but the wave didn't seem to have materialized. Exactly. Um, you know, the Republicans went into the night with a lot of enthusiasm, uh, thinking that they could win 40 seats or, or more, uh, take take 40 seats uh, away from Democrats, uh, which would have been a huge uh, red wave. Uh, that hasn't materialized uh, at this point. So uh, elections that Republicans thought they had a chance to win conclusively and decisively on election night by wide enough margins that those races could be called, uh, you know, didn't shape up that way. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, some thought that Laxalt uh, in Nevada uh, would, uh, would, would have a pretty clean victory over incumbent Senator uh, Cortez Masto. Uh, and, and while, you know, the odds, you know, the early returns are still favoring Laxalt, uh, you know, it wasn't a wide enough margin to blow it open on election night. A lot of Republicans were hoping that Herschel Walker uh, would come out and defeat incumbent Senator Warnock in Georgia. And, you know, a Warnock is actually in the lead, although not quite over that 50 percent threshold. And as a result of, of uniqueness from from some of Georgia's heritage, if no candidate, it's not enough to win the most votes. You must win over 50 percent of the votes in Georgia or that goes to a runoff. And so, uh, you know, several elections that Republicans were very hopeful about, talking about maybe even 53 seats in the Senate, 
they're, 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 at this point, the Republicans are, are going to need the wind at their backs uh, just to get to the 51 uh, that, that many forecasts uh, regarded as a floor uh, for, for Republican performance. So uh, Republicans who, who thought they were going to come in and just clean the table uh, last night are feeling a little disappointed this morning. You know, certainly Republicans are going to, you know, you know, Republicans didn't have an awful night. There was by no means a blue wave, but haven't performed to expectations or, or at least to hopes uh, that they set for themselves in, in yesterday's election. Why do you think that is? Oh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, in, to the extent that we have seen polling errors at times in the last several elections, it's been uh, the error has been underestimating Republican vote. Uh, so I think some uh, folks thought that you know the, that trend might continue, and that a small Republican lead in a poll could be interpreted as a likely Republican victory. Uh, that has not been borne out by what we've seen, uh, in, you know, uh, coming out so far since uh, the, uh, the polls closed yesterday. Uh, I think another piece of it is that uh, Republicans assumed as you know not not necessarily wrongly, but on the basis of history, uh, we've tended to see economic issues uh, outweigh uh, cultural issues in in the past. And so for Republicans, uh, in, it, it was inflation, uh, and for Democrats, in many ways, it was abortion uh, related issues uh, following the Dobbs decision. And that doesn't seem to have shaken out, at least yet, or at least not by the margins Republicans thought it would, that inflation would trump some of these other uh, cultural issues that have really motivated and, uh, and animated uh, uh, Democratic voters uh, so far in this, in this election. One piece of analysis that I read this morning I found very interesting. Um, of course, the, 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 um, the usual uh, what happens is the, the, you know, the party out of power, um, uh, you know, tends to gain seats, right? And, it's, and if, if the president is somewhat unpopular, that has an effect as well. Well, this analysis was saying, according to some exit polls, those who somewhat disapproved of President Biden uh, didn't break decisively against him. They, they they tended to be pretty even or, or a little bit favored the Democrats, uh, which I would think is somewhat unusual. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, somewhat disapprove is an interesting and tricky category. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I'd, I'd need I'd love to be able to do a deeper dive with those data. Some of that could be people who are actually core strong Democrats who are disappointed that Biden hasn't done as much to take a more progressive course uh, than he has done. Um, and, and, you know, they, if, if they are Democrats who are kind of disappointed, then they're still probably going to show up, still probably turn out and participate in support of the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates for House and Senate. And so that could be a part of what's happening. And in fact, my, my hunch is that that's likely uh, the, the nature of that. What, what's unique there perhaps is that they are still turning out and engaging because sometimes you see voters who are disappointed with, um, with their party's uh, uh, president uh, just d- deciding to stay home in the midterm elections. Yeah. And uh, a- again, you see 
I, I think the the you know one likely driver of this is is uh, the abortion issue being enough that voters who might not say it's important to get out it's it, they may not see it as important to participate in the midterm elections when there's no president on the ballot still having enough motivation to uh, to you know get out of their homes or uh, or to to fill out that ballot and drop it in the mailbox and and uh, uh, you know it's it's certainly been enough to blunt what uh, initially looked like a, a better Republican night than it's transpired to be in in the end um, you know it's it's not appearing yet that we're going to be in a situation uh, that's very very unique where the uh, the incumbent president's party gains seats in the midterms uh, that's really that's only happened twice uh, since World War II, uh, in, in both in 1998 and in 2002. Uh, so I, I don't think we're going to see a defiance of the fundamentals on that level. But the question uh, that that Republicans are going to need to to be asking and evaluating is, why didn't we perform as well as we thought we would? We, you know, in in the end, the Republicans are still very likely to end up gaining some seats in the House, but why is that seat gain not as substantial as it seems like it might have been? And and one one analysis that I reviewed suggested that candidates who were very aggressively pursuing a, a pro-Trump uh, agenda um, are, are candidates who struggled a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so as Republicans, you know, this, you know, today is not just the end of the congressional uh, uh, midterm elections, but it's also really the beginning of the 2024 presidential election. And I think as Republicans start thinking about what they want to do in in that election, that there's going to you know need to be a lot of uh, of soul searching and a lot of thinking about who the candidate is that 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 really puts the best foot forward for the party. And maybe even making some trade-offs. Uh, you know, there's you know, certainly Donald Trump captured uh, the soul of a wide range of the Republican Party in ways that you know previous Republican nominees are struggled to do. Mitt Romney didn't grab a hold on the imagination of Republicans in 2012, the way Donald Trump did in 2016 and, and again in 2020, though not successful in winning in the general election. Um, so Republicans may have to uh, even think about well, not just who they love, but who can win, and uh, and and that's a challenging trade-off for parties to navigate. And Democrats may be wrestling with some of those decisions themselves, uh, as uh, with Biden continuing to struggle with his popularity and approval as as president. You know, do we do do Democrats take that very very unusual step uh, in uh, in in the scope of American hif- history of not renominating an incumbent president? So uh, you know, a lot of interesting things to come as uh, as as we look forward to that election uh, in the course of the next couple of years. Uh, so I want to head toward another break. Uh, when we come back, I want to look uh, more into the future. But so for the immediate future here, um, the, the the Democrats did pick up a Senate seat, right? That's the, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so that means that to um, you know preserve the status quo, uh, Democrat, uh, Republicans are going to have to pick up a seat if they want to take control of the Senate. They have to pick up two. They do have a you know a, a shot here. They've they've got uh, they got a, a 
very real shot in Arizona and Nevada, right? So leaving aside for now to Georgia, what do you think happens in, in those two states? Look, I, uh, I, I think uh, uh, Senator Kelly is, is likely uh, to be successful. Early returns have him uh, in, you know, doing pretty well. Uh, there, we've got to see kind of how that gap closes. But I, I think the most likely route to, if, if Republicans are going to take control of the Senate, uh, is through Nevada and winning a, a likely runoff in the state of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the the path through Arizona is a little more difficult uh, mm-hmm. for Republicans uh, right now, and so. Uh, you know, we'll we'll just you know, the, the not not picking up Pennsylvania certainly hurts. It looks like Ron Johnson. I don't know if they've called uh, Wisconsin yet, uh, but it looks like Ron Johnson will be successful. Uh, New Hampshire uh, went to the uh, to the Democratic senatorial candidate there, and so a, a lot of the states where we're, we'd usually think of of having some swing have ended up not by huge margins, but uh, but going for the Democratic candidate. Uh, uh, um, Fetterman's win in Pennsylvania uh, uh, b- being called fairly early, um, you know, is, is a, a big hit to Republicans and their hopes there. And so I, I think the path really for Republicans is, is most likely to run through Nevada and Georgia if they're to retake control of the Senate uh, in this election. So that transpires if, uh, if the Democrats win Arizona— and lose uh, and Republicans win Nevada, then we're looking at control of the Senate hanging in December <laughs> on Georgia. Yeah, I, a, I think one, uh, once again, right? Yeah, deja vu uh, hits again. And, uh, and, and interestingly, again, with, with uh, Trump's camp making some noise on, on having said they would likely make an announcement about Trump's intentions in the first, uh, you know, within about a couple weeks of the uh, elections uh, yesterday. And so you, you, we have a situation again where Trump may well be the factor uh, that looms larger in the Georgia election than either of the two Senate candidates themselves. And of course, two years ago, uh, survey results suggest, excuse me, uh, that against the backdrop of, uh, of Trump's uh, concerns, uh, of Trump's uh, allegations about the election not being fairly uh, administered, uh, you know, that, that cost Republicans uh, not one but two seats in Georgia. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if history repeats itself with, with Georgia runoff deciding control of the Senate and, and Donald Trump uh, looming large in, uh, in, in the outcome of those races. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with uh, more. We'll look to the future, uh, maybe the, the further out future with Damon Can uh, following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're recapping the 2022 midterms with uh, Utah State University political science professor Damon Can. Um, and uh, so let's dispose of the House uh, just briefly. I, I'm assuming Republicans take control of the House, uh, although they would have preferred to to know that earlier. You know, uh, last night uh, it, it's it's just uh, the, of, of the toss ups. Uh, Republicans have to win. Uh, you know, fewer of those to take yeah. control, right? Yes, um, they, they've had a couple of pickups from some races uh, that that, um, uh, that 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 were democratically held seats previously. That certainly helps. 
But Democrats have shown, uh, in, in, in even in, in some kind of purplish states, some resilience uh, as, as, as well with uh, two hotly contested races in Virginia last night, uh, breaking for uh, Democratic incumbents who had, had been believed to be, uh, who, who were, uh, you know, in, in close races, but ended up pulling it off. And so, you know, really, I... I, I I'm hesitant to to make a call at this point on whether Republicans will or will not uh, take control of the House just because there's still a lot of unpredictability and a lot of mm. cl- uh, close races out there. They they, they may yet uh, pull it off. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of, of uh, a couple years back when, uh, you know, we, we, you know, in 2020, a lot of people were calling for a blue wave uh, to materialize. And it wasn't the massive, overwhelming, uh, you know, kind of wave. And again, part of that is is that it took some time for results of close races to uh, creep in. But Democrats had a pretty good uh, election cycle in 2020. Uh, and here in, in uh, 2022, I think we're observing something that's kind of similar. And when, when all said and done, Republicans will... Uh, um, you know, it, it, it appears uh, that Republicans will have some gains, will have some, uh, some, uh, you know, some positive things that take place for the party, just not at the level uh, that they expected. And to some, you know, you, like, you know, a lot of times when, when I, I uh, listen to uh, UPR and NPR coverage of the economy, the report is not were jobs added uh, or were jo- did jobs contract? It's how did the economy perform and the job market perform relative to expectations? Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of thing here. Yes, Republicans in the end are, are probably going to, to have you know, at, at least break even uh, in the Senate, maybe, maybe take control. Uh, and, and, and Republicans will make some gains in the House, maybe take control. But the question, I think, at this point is... Um, is is you know how how did Republicans underperform what expectations were set, and Republicans are going to have to think carefully about why that is, and and really try to get to the bottom of that if they want to be successful in the presidential and uh, legislative elections in the twenty twenty four cycle. So there's just about two minutes uh, left in the program for this, but I uh, so now we begin the twenty twenty four. Uh, presidential race in earnest uh, looks certain that uh, Mr. Trump's going to get in. Um, he he's going to want to clear the field, right? Uh, is Mr. DeSantis going to get in? Do you think? Yeah, that's exactly the strategy. Uh, by getting in early, Trump uh, would would believe that he could kind of freeze the field a little bit. Um, uh, DeSantis has uh, signaled that Trump's decision to run or not run would not affect his choices. Uh, DeSantis has intentionally kept a little bit of a lower profile in the last six months because he had a race to win in Florida. And and uh, that was essential, I, I think, for him. And it's always a bad look for an incumbent candidate to be campaigning for an office other than the one that they currently need to be elected to. So uh, DeSantis had, has kind of pivoted and, and tried to be, um, uh, I, I think, pretty, you know, really put a, a Florida first uh, um, image out there. 
but I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing some, uh, you know, DeSantis is going to be making trips to Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, as candidates do uh, in this time period, uh, you know, simply because they need to raise their profile, their recognition, and, and uh, some of their favorability ratings in those early primary states. So I, I think DeSantis is very likely to be in, and I think he's going to try to out-Trump Trump, uh, and, uh, and, and I don't think his decision is likely to rest on whether Trump indeed follows through on this uh, indication that he would, uh, you know, make an early announcement on running for 24. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be very interested. We'll be glued to that. Uh, on the one hand, it's kind of depressing. We got we got two years of this. Because uh. <laughs> <laughs> it starts now. We, we hope that now. we get a little bit of a break, yeah. and yet here we are the day after the election. Uh, but the, the reality is these candidates have been thinking, uh, planning, and considering uh, on, on the Republican side especially, but even on the Democratic side, uh, you know, assessing their chances, trying to build up, you know, they, they, they run these leadership packs um, uh, where they can raise and spend money uh, aside from their core reelection funds and, and have a broader range of things they can do with those resources. But uh, these leadership packs are often a first step in uh, uh, in providing an avenue for candidates to explore a run for the presidency. Uh, so you know we we may see, it, it'll be interesting to see does does Marco Rubio revisit mm-hmm. uh, some of his thinking about running for president? Uh, we've heard a lot about Tim Scott, who was successful in his reelection last night as a senator from from South Carolina. Uh, as a potential candidate, uh, we've got uh, uh, Nikki Haley and other South Carolinians. We'll have to well. Uh, we'll have to leave that there. We're we're uh, at the end of the program, and we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, Damon Can, thanks for coming in. Appreciate thanks for it. having me, Tom. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. When we say water is power, we are sometimes actually talking about electricity. Find out how harnessing steam electrified Utah for thousands of residents in the 20th century. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The early decades of the 1900s were marked by a growing demand for electricity and new power technologies sought to fill that need. Wind, hydro, or solar might come to mind as generators of electricity, but in the early 20th century, steam was a popular driver of reliable electrical power. Steam power works by creating a vapor cycle in which fuel, often burning coal, is used to produce heat in a broiler, which converts water into steam. The steam pressure rotates a turbine that generates mechanical energy. A generator attached to the turbine converts mechanical energy into electrical energy. As electricity became essential for homes and businesses, power companies were eager to oblige their growing customer base, particularly in regions that had yet to be electrified. Utah's major utility company, Utah Power & Light, capitalized on the demand for steam power and built several plants throughout the state, beginning in the 1920s. In 1954, UPNL built the Carbon Power Plant at the mouth of Price Canyon, adjacent to the Castlegate Mine and the Price River. 
The location offered proximity to fuel and water needed to operate the steam plant. Before this, Carbon County used to send coal to northern Utah steam plants and got electricity back via transmission lines. But the new power plant had ready access to both fuel and water without needing to truck anything in. At its peak, the carbon plant generated enough electricity to serve roughly 300,000 people in central Utah. But steam plants require a deceptively large amount of water to operate. Millions of gallons per day are needed to create steam and cool condensers. In addition, burning coal to create steam contributes mightily to air pollution. The carbon power plant was the longest continuously operating steam plant in the UPNL system. But its location made facility upgrades difficult and costly. When stricter regulations for mercury pollution came into effect, the plant was retired in 2015. It was one of many coal-fired plants that closed around the century, as demand for greener technologies increased in the 21st century. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.